Well, hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to Season 2 of You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, Aretha Franklin's I Never Loved a Man the Way That I Love You. Micaiah, what do we need to know right up front? Right up front. Uh, this is actually Aretha Franklin's 10th studio album, but her first on Atlantic, which kind of makes it the first Aretha Franklin album, uh, because previously she was on Columbia Records uh, doing a lot of jazz standards. Um, and we see this happen to like Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder, who are on Motown. Uh, you have these black artists who they just kind of have singing jazz songs and not really carving a path for themselves until a little later in their careers, which is the case with Aretha on her 10th studio album. We kind of get the first Aretha Franklin album. And a lot of that is due to like producer Jerry Wexler um, is, is, a, is a huge part of that. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more. Aretha's probably not thought of as an album artist. I mean, she has a number of really big hits. So people probably don't think about the albums yet. Uh, I never uh, loved a man the way I love you. Pretty well loved in the list making rock critic world on Pitchfork's decades list uh, is in the top 10 for the 60s uh, on the most recent Rolling Stone 500 list. It cracked the top 15, I think even number 12 or 14 It's right beside Thriller even Thir- 13, 13. Yeah. I mean, so it's it's beloved. I mean, it, it opens with probably her most iconic song, which we will get into. So, yeah, it comes out, uh, I don't think I even said this, 1967. Pretty good time for music in general. Um, no shortage of good albums that year. When it came out, you know, the album itself wasn't nearly as important as a couple of the singles that made it to, like, number two on the Billboard charts. Hard to think that they, hard to believe they weren't, you know, number one. Uh, but such is the case. Well, it's interesting you to mention that because we do tend to think of Aretha Franklin more as a great song artist as opposed to a great album artist. And okay. it's interesting because this song, this album, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, opens with her song Respect, which just last year on Rolling Stone's updated list of the greatest songs of all time made the list at number one. So according to Rolling Stone, this is the 13th ranked album of all time that opens with the greatest song of all time. Yeah. It seems pretty undeniable. And yet the greatest song of all time never reached number one on the Billboard Top 40. Peaked at number (laughs) two in 1967. And really this album, as as beloved as it is now, as highly thought of as it is now, was not an immediate classic. Obviously, Respect and I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You were both top 10 singles. But other than that, this was not a especially well-received album. It was, you know, it was critically, uh, you know, pretty mixed reviews, most of them good, but pretty mixed reviews. And even as early as, I mean, the 1980s, 1990s, this is not an album that people immediately thought of as being a top 100 of all time. In fact, 
in the first iteration of the Rolling Stone Top 500 albums, this came in at 84. Mm-hmm. In the 17 years between the first and most recent iterations of the Rolling Stone list, this is one of the highest climbing albums. So this is an album recently that has gained even more credibility, even more uh, critical acclaim. And for me, as much as I love Respect, and Respect is an undeniable song, Mm-hmm. I really find myself more and more enjoying the B side of this album. There are some, there are some hidden gems in the B side of this album. Uh, and I even love her cover of the Sam hook of the Sam cook classic. The change is going to come. Oh yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, that, that song is so good that, you know, just by any version of it, it's going to, going to be great. She's a great interpreter of songs. Um, that, that's kind of the thing about Aretha, you know, she, it opens with an Otis Redding cover or interpretation and closes with a Sam Cooke. Also does the Delphonic, she covers the Beatles, she covers Elton John. I mean, she, she goes anywhere and everywhere, you know, to find good songs and uh, she kills them every time. Yeah. And, and I want to say, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more with our guests today, but I, I, I think there's something to that. And in many ways, she, as an interpreter of music, mm-hmm. helps to deliver in this album seemingly a, a compilation of 60s soul rather than just a great Aretha Franklin album. And so maybe that's part of the reason as well to love this album so much is it's not just getting this picture of Aretha Franklin, but you're getting this picture of Aretha Franklin as a songwriter as a co-writer, mm-hmm. as an interpreter of, of, of classic songs, as someone who, if possible, elevates even an Otis Redding song. I mean, that's mm-hmm. there's something really tremendous that's happening in this album. And I love the way you said it, that this is her 10th album, but because it's her first album on Atlantic, it's, it's the first album where her record label kind of understood the force that she is on her own and kind of knew what to do with her. Columbia really was, as you mentioned, kind of stuck in this mindset of if we have a great singer, let's stick them on an album doing a bunch of jazz standards that we already own the, that we already own the copyright to. Essentially it was Columbia doing what they did with a lot of their artists, which is try to milk that cow every way they could. Yeah. I mean, Columbia records over the course of about 20 years, the sheer number of versions of the same 20 or 30 songs they released is astonishing, but it Mm -hmm. makes it. So the artists who performed them, it, it, it feels, it feels like karaoke, like really great karaoke, but that's what it ends up feeling like. And I never loved the man a way I love you. This first album on Atlantic records, it suddenly feels like Aretha comes alive in a way Mm -hmm. that we haven't heard her yet in a studio album. I mean, it's her first, soul album it, it, it's aretha doing what we know i mean she's she's the queen of soul right and it took her 10 albums to get to do that it, it's kind of wild to think about but she's also a really young woman so it's that stevie wonder thing too where she's finally also reached an age where she can be taken seriously and given a little bit more autonomy you know str- strutter stuff or spread her wings or whatever metaphor you want to use whatever um yeah so there, there, there are kind of a lot of factors where this just kind of falls in like just, it's just one of those like kind of great timing things, you know, just 
the the partnership with her producer and the band and the label and the fact that it's 1967 you know is the you know it, they're just a lot of things just kind of falling into place right in this moment and they just kind of captured lightning in a bottle you know it's just it's just kind of one of those albums i i do think though to go in a different direction sure one of the things i really love about this kind of first soul record of hers is that like many artists of her generation and of her background her ex- her exposure the place where she learned to sing was in a church yeah of course and and you begin to hear in her soul in this soul record you really begin to hear aretha the gospel singer begin mm-hmm. to emerge as well and i think that's I, i'm excited about that especially given our guest today tell us a little bit about our guest that we're going to be talking to sure we are talking to aaron cohen uh, who is a writer and an educator and we have him here because he actually wrote uh, the amazing grace book for the 33 and a third series and not only did he write that he also wrote a book called uh, move on up chicago soul music and the black cultural power and he has also uh, been an associate editor at downbeat uh, he's written for the chicago tribune uh, where he lives so he just seemed like a perfect fit yeah so when we come back from the break we'll have aaron to talk about aretha franklin I want to take a quick second and tell you about today's independent record store of the week. Today we are talking about New Way Vinyl in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. New Way Vinyl, that is N-U-Way Vinyl. It's located at 2404 Woodward Avenue in Muscle Shoals. They are open 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Saturday. They are available by phone at 256-381-4743. New Wave Vinyl is the best record store in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. An independent record store to provide you with all of your needs in one of the most historic music cities in the United States. So go check out New Way Vinyl today. My name is Aaron Cohen. And I am the author of Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace, which is part of the 33 and the third series on classic albums. And I am also the author of Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power. And I also teach at uh, City Colleges of Chicago. I teach humanities and English composition. And um, how I grew up listening to Aretha Franklin. Well, I mean, I grew up in the 1980s and um, she was had become you know a fixture on what people call you know Dusty's radio, Oldies radio. Um, you know she was still of course making new records at that time too, and you know she was very much a, still a part of the um, pop culture landscape. Of course we know about her appearance in the movie The Blues Brothers, and 
say what one will about that film. She's terrific in it. And um, so there is also, um, she would be on television and perform. So she was always around, even, you know, in the 1980s. But, you know, I wanted to dig deeper into her work because I just loved it. I mean, I loved the songs that I heard, the songs that we all heard. But I wanted to dig deeper. And um, that was through going into her recording history and learning about the traditions that she came from. And that, of course, helped encourage my interest in gospel music history, which you know I wound up writing about. And um, also, you know, other aspects of soul music, other aspects of jazz. She was very much a part of the jazz tradition as well. And um, so it was always kind of my uh, Aretha Franklin uh, experiences. What was it about that music? What was it about, what was it that you were hearing in her, in the music she connected you to that, that kind of just did something for you? What was it about that music that just grabbed you? Sure. I mean, that voice, I mean, that's really, if I'm to use just two words, that voice. Um, But I'm going to go a bit further than that. And I mean, her voice was just, I mean, never been, never been equaled in any of the musical genres that I've enjoyed listening to. And um her range, uh, her improvisation, her musical skills, um, what she brought to it as a composer, as well as as a singer, as an improviser. Um, I mean, the whole complete package. I mean, she really, you know, even though she's the queen of soul, um, in a lot of ways, she has transcended genre, unlike any other uh, singer who I can uh, think of, with the possible exception of Stevie Wonder, you know. Hmm. But actually, you know, she's not just a singer. I mean, just her skills as a pianist as well, which she mm-hmm. also incorporated into her music, her um, skills as a composer, her, you know, in, along with her interpretive skills, along with her uh, vocal performance, the way she was able to bring um, you know, her talents as a writer and pianist uh, to her voice has just been unparalleled in any, any of the genres, any of the generations, any of the music that... Uh, you know, I've listened to uh, from after, you know, what might be considered her era of the 60s and 70s. I mean, for my mind, what, what I've been thinking about regarding Aretha is that she is kind of, in terms of, you know, transiting genre, I mean, she is one part, you know, Frank Sinatra, you know, this who has just this, this great interpreter of music uh, coming from the jazz tradition, but she's also part um, Otis Redding in terms of writing and soul music but she's also one part british rock scene i mean she she's looking at the beatles she's looking at elton john even you know she's and she's able to interpret and incorporate all that stuff she's one part the gospel tradition she's one part 
you know, she, she, she takes from so many places, but she's not, like you said, just the queen of soul, but really, you know, she, she's pulling from all kinds of places. I mean, it's, I mean, still definitively soul. Um, but even, even the album that we're talking about today, there's blues in there. There's some gospel in there. There's some jazz in there. There's, there's a lot more than she may be given credit for. And for such a young artist as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she was, you know, my gateway artist too, to a lot of people. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I, when I was growing up, I did not listen to, when I was a teenager, um, I did, I did not listen to Mahalia Jackson. I did not listen to Clara Ward. I did not listen to, you know, the caravans, you know, all these other wonderful, great gospel groups who, you know, I became aware of because I would learn about their influence on Aretha Franklin. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think a lot of genres have, um, and a lot of arts have gateway artists, you know, it's like for um, a lot of people who are into American fiction, Ernest Hemingway is their gateway author, um, right. you know, for people who are into film, then, um, you know, Alfred Hitchcock might be their gateway director or, mm-hmm. um, or Martin Scorsese or someone like that. I'm just using those examples. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so for me, uh, Aretha Franklin was also my, my gateway toward these other artists. I'm glad that you mentioned Mahalia Jackson, because it is one of the things that we've been talking about in preparation for this conversation is really trying to kind of narrow down what is this thing that sets Aretha apart? Because she really is a part of a generation of singers in the gospel tradition and the soul tradition and the R&B, I mean, who kind of get labeled really across this, this style of music that we end up calling gospel or soul. Aretha Franklin is not unique in her background And in some ways, she's not even unique in the ways that her previous record label, Columbia, had tried to use her. I mean, they they tried to do with her what they had really kind of done with kind of every Black singer who kind of came through their radar during that period of time. And yet there is something about Aretha Franklin that sets her apart from a Mahalia Jackson, that sets her apart from all of these contemporaries of hers on Motown and on Stax. And it's hard to, I think, put words to what that is. So for, for someone who has spent as much time as, as you have with Aretha Franklin and who has, through Aretha Franklin, also then connected to so many other artists that are part of that tradition, what for you sets Aretha apart from the rest of her contemporaries? Well, I mean, like I say, Aretha, as you just mentioned, I mean, she grew up when she was, you know, really young or a young girl, young teen, young preteen, you know, in that gospel tradition, you know, and again, she was a lot of, a lot of young girls were, I mean, there were a lot of young people, young singers growing up in gospel. Um, They might not have had, you know, her range, her talent, but they grew up singing in churches. They grew up admiring the same sort of people who Aretha, a young Aretha Franklin admired whether it's Clara Ward, whether it's, you know, Mahalia Jackson. I mean, she was closer to Clara Ward, but still. And so in a lot of ways, that upbringing of Aretha Franklin was, you know, not 100% unique. It was freakish almost how, um, how much she was able to, to absorb at a young age and how much she was able to. Now, here's the thing, though. Now, here's what, if you want to talk about what sets Aretha apart from, you know, other, you know, young singers was that when she was, um, you know, around 20 years old. And along with her father's uh, C.L. Franklin's advice, she's going away from church. She's going away and she's 
um, singing secular music. She's not singing gospel music. Again, 19, 20 years old, 21 years old. So what is she doing? Well, she is singing in New York City jazz clubs on bills with people like Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane, you know, the top jazz artists ever. And she is really young and she is, you know, able to go head to head with them in these venues. Now, that is something that I, I, I just cannot found a young singer who had that, you know, incredible gospel background working with the best gospel singers ever, Clara Ward and Alia Jackson, being able to like have this amazing, like, um, you know, ability to absorb it all. And then, you know, work long hours in the top jazz clubs in New York at a young age. So her to absorb those different traditions. I mean, uh, you're talking about British rock, you know, so, you know, the Beatles were playing in these Hamburg clubs, you know, late at night. And that of course, you know, helped them shape their music, helped them shape, uh, what they were doing. And Aretha was going through a similar, you know, process of, you know, putting in those hours, but she's doing it with John Coltrane and Thelonious Monk, as opposed to being on the Reperbahn in uh, Hamburg, you know? So, and she's able to incorporate all of that into, into her music. And it's, it's really funny because um, uh, in uh, Matt Dobkin's book on the, I never loved a man the way I love you album, he quotes uh, Jerry Wexler and Jerry Wexler is quoted as, saying, you know, that when Aretha Franklin sat down at the piano and just started playing, you know, Wexler couldn't believe that she sounded like Thelonious Monk. And I was like, well, it's not that hard to believe. She did, you know, she did work alongside him, you know, so she did uh, bring that into what she did. And then, so able to bring the techniques of jazz improvisation. And in her latter 1960s, latter uh, early 70s records, of course, including Amazing Grace, which I wrote about, she was bringing that, you know, improvisational ability that comes from jazz. I mean, gospel has improvisation too, rock is improvisation, but, you know, with jazz, it's a very different kind of improvisation and it's a very different kind of way of, you know, working alongside and working with the rhythm section. It's a different way of dealing with harmonies in terms of jazz improvisation. And Aretha Franklin as a singer was able to bring that all to her music because of that really young training. It's so interesting hearing you talk about that, especially thinking about how much time she's spending with these jazz artists. But one of the things that I love, one of the vocal tricks that seems to be so consistent across Aretha Franklin's more traditionally soul records in, in, you know, I never loved a man the way I love you, you know, very much the same way. One of my favorite things that she does is the bending her voice into notes but again, the the technical precision, the 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 pitch precision, where she's bringing the power of her voice and she's rising. She so she'll start the note just a little flat and kind of bring her voice up to it. And that seems so unique to Aretha Franklin until you think about that in a jazz context, which is. Every John Coltrane, you know, it's 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 Thelonious Monk, it's Miles Davis, it's it's these horn players who you know are kind of bending into notes as as they arrive to them, and so even thinking about this kind of vocal habit that she has on her big powerful notes is even something that is this picture of taking her you know her voice, the the ability she has with her voice, but also the technical precision that she has that she's getting from these hours, you know, kind of honing her chops in these jazz clubs 
And she's essentially doing horn melodies. She's following kind of horn lines with the way that she uses her voice. And it's just so interesting hearing you talk about that time where those jazz clubs help kind of make her set apart and in in that flexibility of her not just to be able to kind of find her own footing in each of those genres but then also to take those pieces and kind of put all of those things together into this unique kind of stew that just becomes what we know as Aretha Franklin Actually, now that I think about it, I also want to add that even before she was singing in these clubs, I mean, who were some of the guests that are, you know, father's home? Art Tatum, you know, one of the great jazz pianists of all time, Ramsey Lewis. I mean, these were the regular, along with Dinah Washington, along with Clara Osborne. So, yeah. So even before she was doing that at a young age. But to get back to what you're saying, I mean, the knowledge that a singer has to have absorbed about the chromatic scale and to bend those notes the right way is to have that ability and knowledge of how that works. I mean, that, that is really something. Yeah. So she's, she's with Columbia Records. She's doing the jazz thing. She's in the jazz clubs. And for her 10th studio album, which is I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, she's on Atlantic. And now she's recording not only in New York, because this album is partially recorded there, but also in Muscle Shoals, which is a completely different musical tradition, a very different cultural context. Uh, it's a very, you know, there, there are a lot of different differences between the jazz clubs and, and the recording studios in Muscle Shoals. So for us and our listeners, uh, I know this is a big ask, um, <laughs> uh, help us understand kind of the significance of Muscle Shoals when it comes to Southern music and Southern soul. Sure. I mean, I know I'm going to leave a whole lot out here because I just have like a you know a little bit of time to talk about Muscle Shoals. But um, what we're really talking about at Muscle Shoals is uh, Fame Studios. And that was mm-hmm. um, along with the word fame was also an acronym for, I believe it was Florence, Alabama Music Enterprises, because Rick Hall started it in Alabama in Florence and then moved to Muscle Shoals. Anyway, that's you know, there. But the point is, it's, you know, in rural Alabama, but there was a lot of like really great open-minded musicians who made that studio their place. And um, many of them, you know, were on, I never loved a man the way I love you. Uh, One of them uh, who we lost um, last year was a great drummer, uh, Roger Hawkins. And um, 
who had this really great, you know, cymbal and snare sound. And another one who's still with us, um, Spooner Oldham, a great, you know, pianist and a keyboardist. And so, you know, these sorts of musicians were in the studio and, you know, they were into country music. They were into soul music. They were into blues. They were like, you know, I've had the good fortune of speaking to a couple of these folks like Spooner Oldham and Dan Penn, who was also a writer uh, at the studio. And they're just really just a bunch of, you know, benevolent, uh, easygoing, um, cool guys who are really open-minded, who also had a really, really top musical skills, really top instrumental skills, even though they came across as like a bunch of, you know, laid back, uh, you know, um, guys, um, they had really sharp skills, um, like especially those two guys I just mentioned. Another thing too about Muscle Shoals or Fame Studios was part of that being laid back, they had the opportunity to just um, try out ideas. Um, you know, um, you mentioned Columbia and um, you know, Aretha Franklin did make some great records at Columbia, um, you know, records that really should have been hits. Um, but Columbia was not a place for musicians to just sort of hang out and, you know, mm. think about ideas in the studio and just, you know, cause time was money, you know? So at uh, fame at muscle shoals, she was with a group of guys who um, had the ability to just, you know, hang out, try out ideas, see what was funky. They're also really good musicians. Now there was also a uh, different, there's a dynamic at work here. And that is, uh, just about all of the musicians at Fame were, were white musicians, and it was the South, it was the rural South, and this was the 1960s. So there was that uh, going on, and um, in you know inside the studio, um, you know things were they're not completely utopian, but you know people worked together, people treated each other uh, well, and that's why when musicians like Wilson Pickett and Percy Sledge, you know, started recording there, um, you know, they could you know, get a good sound from everybody. And that's, you know, what made uh, Jerry Wexler want to take Aretha Franklin uh, down to the South, um, you know, and Aretha Franklin and her husband, Ted White, had some misgivings about being in the South. And um, well, this is only for our listeners. This album comes out in 67. The Selma to Montgomery March is 1965. Yeah. So yeah, this, yeah. this is this is, you know, very much on their minds that they're going to go down south, especially after being in right in New York. Oh, That's absolutely, cool. absolutely. I mean, Aretha Franklin, Ted White, you know, as well as the other musicians uh, like Wilson Pickett, who recorded there, had real concerns about going to the south. I mean, complete, yeah. real, real concerns about their safety. And um, but they went anyway to to make this record. Now, um, I, I did not. See, okay, I have to say, I did not see any of those recent Aretha Franklin biopics. Um, so I don't know like what the one with Jennifer Hudson and the National Geographic one. So I have to admit, I didn't see them for various reasons, but I don't know if they depicted um, the conflicts that went on um, in the studio uh, during the recording, but there were some conflicts. And um, again, referring to um, Matt Dobkin's book about the record, you know, he no one's going to know for sure what exactly happened, but, you know, he did look into it and um, they were not able to complete a recording there because of these conflicts. Um, so there was that. Yeah. And then that's when they went back to New York. Right. Back to New York. Now, another thing too about going back to New York was um, that's when um, one of Aretha Franklin's, you know, key musical partners was the um, tenor saxophonist, King Curtis. And, um, you know, he 
uh, came in on the sessions and just a mighty, you know, tenor saxophone player. I mean, again, to use another, uh, you know, jazz analogy, I mean, Billie Holiday had her, you know, saxophone um, foil or partner, best friend in Lester Young. So it was like this, you know, singer, tenor player, you know, pairing that works, you know, so well in American music. Billie Holiday had Lester Young and Aretha Franklin had King Curtis on, you know, on these records. Digging just a little bit more time in the Muscle Shoals thing, just because it's uh, you have a group of studio musicians who are basically the wrecking crew of the Deep South. You know, they're they're on a bunch of records. They're really tight musicians, um, but what you're hearing is not the wall of sound. It's not the Motown sound. Like there's a, there's a very particular sound that, that you get out of Muscle Shoals. It's not even quite the Memphis sound. I mean, what everyone says is like, oh, it's because they were laid back. The music is more laid back because they're more laid back is what they attribute to. But I was wondering from you, if you have any other reasons for why that studio, this record, you know, what is it about this sound and that place with this artist um, that makes it, you know, kind of sonically set apart from Wall of Sound or Motown and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, let me also, uh, you know, say that by that laid back approach, that only works if the musicians are really, really good. It wasn't just that they were, you know, uh, resting or uh, napping, you know, during the, but, you know, someone like Spooner Oldham, um, you know, was able to sit and think about keyboard parts and able to, you know, apply, uh, you know, on, you know, on the songs that Spooner Oldham was on and, um, you know, they're able to construct um, arrangements like that. Um, you know, but by the Memphis sound, I assume that you're meaning like Booker T and the MGs uh, over mm-hmm. at Stax. And, yeah. um, you know, they were they were a group. They were, a, you know, a group of performers as well as, um, you know, studio players. So they had that, you know, um, ability to come up with, you know, ideas from, from touring as well as their own recordings. Whereas um, these guys... Um, there's more openness, uh, more space, and with that, the ability to fill it. Now, again, a lot of that um, filling, uh, <laughs> better word I should use, but uh, I mentioned earlier um, the late Roger Hawkins, who we uh, lost, and his ability to just nail that down, uh, that ability to be so precise as he was while you know all of these ideas were coalescing was something. Now, again, with the wall of sound, um, you know, that was um, just, you know, 
huge confluence of, of musicians thrown in there. Um, a lot of wrecking crew mm-hmm. things are that way. And so with that, um, I think, um, and then also at Motown roles tended to be more scripted. I mean, again, not always, and I'm making a big generalization here, um, but I'm going to go ahead with it anyway. And that is, um, you know, with a case uh, like uh, Fame Studios and Muscle Souls, there was more of a sense of openness, more of a sense of open air is sort of the feeling I get from, from that uh, studio space. Um, high records in Memphis would have been different uh, too. So right. um, yeah, they, they all have. And I think that openness, um, open air that you can feel that it would take also then again, a voice as um, big as Aretha Franklin's to fill that. Another way to put it is that, you know, uh, what Phil Spector's operating, what Barry Gordy, they're operating songwriting like factories, mm-hmm. right? And Muscle Shoals, it is that like, hey, you know, let's let's put the work in and and find it. You know, let, let's play and find the song instead of just like, hey, Motown has a formula. We know the formula and keep generating those hits. Well, and also let me add to that is, um, and this goes you know, outside of the idea of, of the, you know, uh, sound itself. But um, as you just mentioned, Motown, you know, the work was, at the, especially at that time, divided. You know, songwriters did this, producers did that, instrumentalists did this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, on, um, you know, uh, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You. I mean, you know, three of the key tracks were Aretha Franklin compositions. Um, I mean, they were credited to Aretha Franklin and, you know, it's Ted White or someone else, but still, it's probably Aretha who did most of the writing. And, you um, mm-hmm you know, in a more, um, you know, structured environment like Motown, I, I mean, it's hypothetical because it didn't happen, but I don't know if Aretha Franklin would have had the ability to compose as well as, you know, she had in that sort of uh, space that she had at Muscle Shoals to, you know, bring in her own or her and her husband's own compositions. And those are wonderful, great, you know, tunes. Well, then another thing, too, about I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. I mean, Jerry Wexler is nominally the producer, but, um, you know, something tells me that he really wasn't the uh, controlling type of producer that, you know, like a, a Phil Spector or, you know, any number of the producers at Motown. I mean, just take, I mean, it seems like Jerry Wexler was more uh, someone who, you know, didn't have a real musical education. He had instincts. He had great instincts. But he didn't seem like the sort of guy who could like, you know, command, you know, instrumentalists to play a certain part. So it seems like I think Jerry Wexler, you know, knew that in terms of taking 
you know, Aretha Franklin down to an environment where, um, you know, Jerry Wexler as the so-called producer, you know, can say to a musician, um, you know, whoever it was, Spooner or whoever, you know, um, hey, give me a digga bigga digga bigga. And they'd be like, well, you mean this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, you know. Whereas, you know, an actual like a Motown producer, uh, you know, um, you know, even a Stax producer. I mean, you know, someone like Booker T. Jones would be like very exacting about that. Yeah. I mean, again, comparing to other studios or getting into the hypothetical, but um, yeah, I think a big part of that is that someone like a Jerry Wexler could, with his approach to what is called producing, uh, could also, you know, <laughs> blend in that environment. Okay. Let's dive into the opening track of I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. Respect, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, <laughs> one of the most iconic songs of all time in uh, the latest Rolling Stone iteration of the greatest songs of all time. It came in at number one. So it's hard to not love this album when it opens with the greatest song of all time, according to Rolling Stone. What is it about Aretha's interpretation of this Otis Redding song that elevates this song in a way that i mean it, it becomes something wholly her own on this recording and it's it's almost hard to believe this ever started as an otis redding song when you hear aretha take hold of this song what is it about aretha franklin's interpretation of this song that just that elevates it this way yeah, it's, re it's really funny because every so often, you know, I'll see on uh, social media, Twitter, Facebook, just some rando question, what is your favorite cover version of all time? And of course, I always pick Aretha Franklin, respect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many people out there in the Twitterverse, the Facebook world are like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was a cover. Um, you know, so but to get back to your question, um, there's a, it's really funny because, you um, one of the things about Aretha Franklin's voice is, you know, she has this incredible range, you know, more than three octaves. And I mentioned all of that improvisational ability. But with that, she brings this warmth and she brings this, um, you know, sense of immediacy. And, you know, of course, every, you know, great singer can reach a person, you know, whoever the great singer is. And uh, that's the first thing for a singer to do. And I think Aretha Franklin's the sense of immediacy, the sense of warmth, the sense of familiarity, that even with all of this incredible vocal talent, incredible vocal training that she has, um, you know, she's able to make the listener feel that, you know, that she is their friend, you know, she gives that feeling and, you know, all that stuff about going up and down the scales, all that stuff we talked about earlier about bending notes and everything is crucial, but to mix that with that, you know, personability and, and then that call and response as well, you know, with uh, her and her sisters too. Um, you know, that's all, you know, that's all a part of it. And that energy as well, that life force, um, you know, as, as great as Otis Redding, you know, was, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to belittle Otis Redding at all. He's, he's wonderful, fantastic. But, you know, I think that um, Aretha Franklin had a greater ability to connect on a personal way than, you know, Otis Redding is great, but he's not someone who you feel is sitting down next to you. Aretha Franklin, as greater a singer as she is than anybody, also at her best, you felt that she was your friend. What you want, baby, I got what you 
her intensity in her vocals sounds more akin to to James Brown. It's, it's much more demanding. It's much more you know in your face. You know the her what you want is not the same as Otis Redding's. You know they they come into the track very differently, even though there's some familiarity in the sound of the recordings. Ugh, that sounds this is gonna sound ridiculous, whatever, but because it's an, it's anachronistic to say, but it it just sounds like it was written for Aretha Franklin. It sounds like it was written for a woman all along. You know what I mean? Like it, it's hard to believe that it was meant for Otis Redding. It was even meant for a man to sing and perform. You know, there, there is something also about her femininity that completely changes the song. You know? Well, yeah. Um, and you know, it's really interesting because, um, you know, you, uh, mentioned the term anachronistic and, um, you know, the, the women's movement, well, the women's movement has been around for many, many, many decades, even though it wasn't as prominent, but it became more prominent in the years since. And, um, you know, was Aretha Franklin's respect, um, sort of the, uh, hidden, um, you know, spark that lit the modern uh, women's movement. You know, I'm not going to say no. (laughs) No, I mean, it's true. I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's a black woman in the civil rights era demanding respect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a revolutionary idea in 1967. I mean, like I say, I mean, you use the word anachronistic and it's because of this performance that it is anachronistic to say, you know, but you know, that's, I think, you know, I I think, yeah. um, A lot of credit can be given to this performance of hers, this song, this performance, this recording. Oh, absolutely. It would be a much worse world without it. I think we can all agree. Yeah. That's nicely put. Yeah. That's, that's a great way of putting it. We've talked a little bit about this kind of move for her from Columbia to Atlantic in, in kind of all the things that are, that are a part of this, what is it that you hear on your favorite songs on this album that really demonstrate kind of this, this stark turning point, this distinct turning point for her in her career? Well, I want to, um, you know, go back and say that I, I believe the Columbia records are a lot better than, you know, a lot of historians say, you know, I think, you know, um, some of those songs, I mean, like, um, uh, one step ahead, which, um, you know, she recorded at Columbia. I mean, that could have been a massive pop hit. And, um, you know, it's appeared on, since then, it's appeared on movie soundtracks like uh, Moonlight, and it's been uh, sampled by people like Mos Def. And, um, you know, it's just one example of a Columbia, you know, hidden track, not hidden track, it was a known track that, I mean, had it caught on, you know, could have been as big as any other hit um, single that year. And some of those albums, um, that she recorded at Columbia, um, you know, with, you know, her Dinah Washington tribute. I mean, that, again, could have been massive. But let me get back to uh, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. And one of the things about this album um, that really stands out that, um, you know, that I hadn't mentioned yet is um, the diversity of material on it. And I think that, um, oh, and then also, too, not just the diversity, but the diversity that our you know, uh, encompassed by Aretha Franklin's compositions or co-compositions, um, you know, don't let me lose, um, don't let me lose this dream, uh, which is essentially a bossa nova. And, um, you know, and that's followed by baby, 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 which is, you know, pure soul. And that's 
followed by Dr. Feelgood, which is super soul. So, um, you know, and then of course with respect and, you know, uh, never loved a man. Um, and so, you know, this diversity of material, this, um, you know, within this album that she's able to handle um, with such finesse as well, um, the diversity that she brought to it, because, I mean, if there is one thing that the Columbia Records um, did lack was uh, Aretha Franklin's own writing and her own emphasis on her piano playing. So, um, you know, again, there's more of her as a pianist, her piano playing, guiding her vocals on this album and then on her subsequent Atlantic albums as well. This album is an album that we both love and and kind of saw as, hey, this is one of the great albums of all time. And yet, as we have both spent the week listening to the entire discography of Aretha Franklin, I think both of us have found ourselves at different times going, is this the best album? Is it Lady Soul? Is it Amazing Grace? Is it Young, Gifted, and Black? I mean, going through and trying to go, all right, what? wow, she does so many great albums and then trying to go, all right, what's, what is the right one? What is the right one? Let's I mean, ask Amazing that. Grace is my favorite, but you know, that's just me. <laughs> well, so that, a hunch. that, well, that would be our question. So for you, if, if it's not, I never loved a man the way I love you. What are the other albums by Aretha Franklin that should be in this conversation of her best? Oh yeah, well, Amazing Grace uh, and um, and Live at the Fillmore. Uh, don't forget that one. Uh, you forgot one. Live at the Fillmore. Uh, Rob has uh, not forgotten this one. <laughs> All right, uh, you, you know, um, Young, Gifted, and Black. Yeah, that that's been my struggle this week. Is I've been listening to about six. I've been cycling through about my six favorite. You know, so Never Loved a Man, Lady Soul, Aretha Now, and Amazing Grace. So I've been kind of just like kind of cycling through you know, my six favorites. And I keep thinking all this week, you know, I mean, I never loved a man has five stone cold hits. Half of it is stone cold hits for her, but young gifted and black is exceptional for her and any artist. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. You know, know, um, I mean, the song daydreaming, I'm like, this is bananas. 
as as a musician, as an artist, as a singer. I mean, there are so many. I mean, she really comes through in a lot of really fun ways. I, I've been struggling. Like, did I forget one? Did should should we be talking about Young Gifted and Black? I think that might be sure. Like the the best kind of example of her as a as a studio artist. And then the other struggle becomes if you're a, 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 on a if you're ever going to consider a gospel album one of the great albums of all time. Mm-hmm. Amazing Grace might be the greatest gospel album of all time. And so right. it's hard it's hard to go the greatest gospel album of all time might not even be her best album. I mean, well, that, that's 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 that's, yeah, that's I mean, amazing. That is something. That is something. Um you know and again I, I think in a lot of ways too with Amazing Grace is um for me um you know, that was my gateway album for gospel music. And um, because she was also, it was interesting because at that time it was, you know, 19 early, actually it was January 70. Oh gosh, it was, she was recording it almost, um, you know, 50 uh, years ago, uh, as I say this. And, um, you know, she was looking back to an earlier generation's gospel. She was listening, looking back to, you know, uh, groups like uh, the Gay Sisters who were, here in Chicago recording in the late forties, early fifties and, you know, people like Clara Ward and her tradition and people like Mahalia and, you know, in the white rock world at that time, it was okay to look backwards. It was okay for the Beatles to get back, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And it was, but for, you know, soul artists to get back to an earlier generation um, in this case, an earlier generation of gospel and to, you know, bring it forward. You know, along with taking, you know, R&B songs like Marvin Gaye's Holy Holy and bringing it into the gospel, which contemporary gospel musicians would do later. I mean, this was a real crossroads um, that she was commanding at that time. Let's start. Let's start with Amazing Grace. This this album that was your gateway into gospel music. And for those who are unfamiliar, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with gospel music, what is it? that makes this recording so special? So many things. I mean, of course, Aretha Franklin, uh, to give you a a two-word answer. Um, I mean, and she also at this time was one of the great things about, and when I go to gospel, see gospel music perform in churches, um, or I did before the pandemic, and when I would go to see gospel music perform in churches or gospel festivals, um, you know, singers are not under the constraints um, oftentimes in popular music. And, you know, if Aretha Franklin wants to sing for 10 minutes, 12 minutes, um, she can. And she's in a venue, she's in a space, she's in a community where she can sing as long as she wants to and or as short as she wants to. Um, she can, um, and also too, um, what makes this album special is the choir. And the way she is working alongside a choir um, that is being directed by uh, James Cleveland, uh, Alexander Hamilton, and making this choir, even though there's so many of these singers, move with this incredible funky flexibility, uh, you know, for lack of a better term. And that interaction along with this, you know, core group of total ace, you know, instrumental musicians along with them. And so that makes this thing, this recording, this the performance, really the whole package. Amazing Grace. 
At the time when I sent the proposal to do the book on Amazing Grace, um, Rolling Stone named Aretha Franklin the best singer of all time. Great. But in Mary J. Blige's, I think it was Mary J. Blige who wrote the um, accompanying essay, you know, Amazing Grace was not mentioned once, you know. So, um, you know, I thought that was, to say the least, a huge oversight. And Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I wanted to write uh, the book on Amazing Grace was to do what I could to correct um, that history, to correct the way that I saw the album at that time as being ignored. And that was, of course, about 10 years. Uh, I, mean, I knew the film was made, but that was 10 years before the film had come out. So, yeah. yeah. And it's um, very fun to read. So if anyone is interested, you do a great job right up top um, with some some good church history and history of Black church music and all kinds of, you know, so if anyone is into that kind of stuff from a historical perspective, you're going to have a lot of fun with those first uh, couple of chapters. And it goes, I mean, it's, it is in depth and there are great uh, bits in here from the musicians involved. And it's a really good read for, for fans of Aretha and that record and in gospel music and for something that's, you know, small by design, all of these books, it, it doesn't feel that way reading it. I mean, it feels packed and loaded with lots of great stuff. So make sure that everyone who's interested goes and gets the, uh, your record store, or local bookstore. It's a good time. Thank you. Thank you. I had a really great time actually interviewing uh, the musicians involved. I mean, they're just wonderful, wonderful people. You know, I don't want to sound naive, but um, it, it's sort of, it always disheartens me when, um, you know, I hear from somebody who loves music, somebody who might love music, but they can't listen to gospel because they don't like the, you know, religious message, they object to the religious message. And it's like, I'm like, well, 
you listen to reggae and I know you're not a Rastafarian, you know, and I, and I was like, well, you know, it's, 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 you know, it is music of a faith. And, um, you know, I guess to unpack it a bit further, um, you know, I mean, every, every, um, I mean, you can trace gospel music uh, to every form of American secular music, whether it's country, folk, bluegrass, rock, jazz, blues, I mean, you hip-hop. name it, and to hip hop, you know, you, you name it, and it goes. There's some uh, disco, certainly. There's a lot of, you know, some, you know, a lot of. You can find a lot of gospel roots in in disco um, as well, house music as well. Here in Chicago, um, after I finished the book, um, I was talking with um, a radio DJ here in Chicago. Her name is Terry Hemmert, and um, she's on a station WXRT. She's been on the air for many years. And I told her about the book and she said that when the album came out, she was a DJ in, um, I don't want to get it wrong. I think it might've been like Rochester, New York, somewhere like that. And, you know, she was working at a white uh, rock station and she mentioned when, you know, she played that album, she was attacked. The station was like attacked. There were, you know, they, she got threats for playing that album, songs from that album. And, um, you know, she played other Aretha Franklin music before and never got threatened. So, I mean, had I, you know, known about that story, I would have included it in the book, but, um, but it's real, you know, it's real. And I think, you know, um, you know, when you mentioned earlier about hip hop and its connections with gospel, and I think that sort of um, sense of community that gospel at its very best, um, you know, presents. And I think with Aretha Franklin, recording this album in a church. I mean, there's the community right there. I mean, it's not just the choir, but it's the, you know, parishioners and everything too. Now, granted, some of that was overdubbed, but that's another story. Um, but the point, point is it presents a community. And I think that, you know, some people don't listen, some people, not everybody, but some people don't listen to hip hop, you know, because they have that, you know, fear of a community. And I think that yeah. in some ways, you know, there's a, a fear among certain, you know, white listeners to African-American gospel music for that reason.
Well, and as someone who spent so much time with Aretha and, and especially talking to musicians and researching her career and life, um, you know, we had so many questions for you, but you know, as, as the saying goes, there's, there's the things, you know, you don't know, and the things you don't know, you don't know. So, so what are, what are the things we don't know that we don't know? What are, what are the things that you have learned uh, about Aretha Franklin that you're going, Hey, we can't let your listeners not know this about Aretha Franklin. Well, I, you know, I really wanted to emphasize, um, her jazz training and, um, you know, real trial by fire in terms of, of jazz and in terms of background in jazz, you know, um, um, I, before I started writing books and such, I was an editor at Downbeat, uh, the jazz magazine. And in one of the very, one of the two, one of the two very brief conversations I had with Aretha Franklin, um, you know, I mentioned working for Downbeat and uh, she right away brought up that Downbeat was the first magazine that ever wrote about her. And um, so, you know, she always felt very strongly about that. And then, um, well, Hey Now Hey, Other Side of the Sky, another great underrated Aretha Franklin album when she covers Moody's Mood for Love, you know, which is a jazz standard. So, um, you know, she had jazz chops, serious jazz chops, jazz training, jazz background. And I think that's something that people really need to know and appreciate about, about her work. Is, is that aspect to it. And um, that, you know, she was, you know, first rate jazz singer and, you know, probably could have been a great jazz pianist as well. Um, I think that's, that's really the most important thing about her music. Um, uh, the things about her personal life, um, that, that doesn't really interest me, you know, <laughs> you know, really? about like, no, I mean, um, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I really, you know, whether whoever she was, with or whatever um you know i just hope that um she was happy i hope she was a happy person i don't know um you know i mean i know people you know have said that she was very sad a lot of times and people talk about the sorrow and, and there was a lot of tragedy in her life king curtis her father's uh, shooting things like that there were so many um, sad things, um, in her life, but, um, you know, I'd like to think that there was a lot of happiness too, but, um, as far as her personal life, that's all I can say is I just hope that there was a lot of happiness there. I, I don't know. See now, Aaron. Aaron is here because he was super nice when the announcement came out about the Sandinista book. Aaron reached out to me, said he was super excited because he loves the record, and told me that he had met Joe Strummer. 
Well, Sandinista, Sandinista is one of my top five favorite albums. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, wow. it's not number one. It's not nowhere near number one, but it's in the top five. Well, can can we ask you what those top five are? Yes, please. This is how uh, we like to end every episode. <laughs> okay, so Amazing Grace is number one. Um, oh, wow. And uh, I think Curtis, well, it's a tie between, three-way tie <laughs> between um, Curtis Live and uh, Curtis, the first solo album by Curtis, uh, the Superfly soundtrack. So three-way tie. Something else at number four could be one of a hundred different albums. <laughs> and then uh, maybe Ornette Coleman's uh, Shape of Jazz to Come. Um, you know, maybe um, Von Freeman doing it right now from the great Chicago saxophonist. Maybe Sunra Jazz and Silhouette. Um, you know, maybe um, a Billy Holiday best of I bought when I was in high school. So the number four slot is, you know, is, is into, into contention. So maybe if I moved actually, uh, sorry, Joe and Nick, but maybe I move Sandinista down to 10, I could fill out those other four spots with those, um, you know, the Ornette Coleman, Sun Ra, Von Freeman, um, you know, put a Billy holiday in there. Okay. So now we got to put Miles Davis in there. So yeah, it's well, which Miles Davis. Well, that's the thing. I'm thinking maybe ESP or Jack Johnson. Um, oh, yeah. Or, um, you know, Kind of Blue is up there, but I don't know if I put Kind of Blue as, um, as high as those. Um, you know, Sketches of Spain. Um, mm. from him. Um, you know, now I'm like, and then I'm thinking about some bootlegs I have that I probably shouldn't mention. So... <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I'm very bad with lists. I mean, I'm terrible with lists. I mean, you know, it's really. <laughs> I mean, you've already said, you know, Curtis Mayfield, Ornette Coleman, The Clash. I mean, so I'm, I'm satisfied. <laughs> yeah. you, tr- trust me, you have not lost any credibility with our listeners. That's for sure. No, I'm just, I'm just, I forgot one. I forgot two. <laughs> I forgot ten. I forgot twenty. You know what's? Yeah, once you start pulling that thread, it. Um, <laughs> well, you're, you're in my shirt. Yeah. You're in good company there. Hey, for for our listeners, Aaron, uh, how can they follow you online? How can they stay up to date on uh, on your latest writings? And speaking of 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 Curtis, you recently contributed liner notes to the 50th anniversary of Superfly. Am I correct? Yeah, and that comes out um, a special edition from. Real Gone Music, um, you know, Curtis Mayfield is runs throughout my book, Move On Up, um, which is a social look at the social and cultural changes that contributed to soul music in Chicago and how musicians themselves were change agents. And Curtis Mayfield runs throughout that narrative. So but yes, I also did uh, the liner notes to the 50th anniversary edition of Superfly that comes out um, later this year. They take pre-orders now. Uh, but you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Aaron Cohen Words, uh, the at symbol, and then A-A-R-O-N-C-O-H-N Words, Aaron Cohen Words. And I'm on Facebook too. Um, there's a lot of Aaron Cohens, but uh, I'm the only one who's posing with uh, a gorgeous woman who is my wife, LaVon. And so, um, you know, me and my lovely wife are there. That's But that's me, Aaron Cohen on Facebook, but Aaron Cohen Words on Twitter. Wonderful. Wonderful. Aaron, thank you so much for being with us. We can't thank you enough for doing this. Um, But we are going to continue to encourage our listeners to pick up your 33 and a third volume on Amazing Grace and later this year be looking for the 50th anniversary of 
Curtis Mayfield Superfly, an album that we will be talking about later this season on the podcast. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you guys for having me. It's been wonderful. It's, it's good to be back. And it's good to have um, a new guest. He's our yeah. first new guest in, in, in such a long time because in our bonus episodes, we kind of have, you know, old friends of the podcast come on. So it's uh, nice to, to talk to a new person about a, an artist who we haven't covered yet. I, it's, it's good to be back in the swing of things. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things we, we haven't talked about enough, but I, I want to go ahead and just say um, – this is the first album that we have done in the podcast by a solo female artist. Mm-hmm. And I think that's appropriate. According to all of the lists we've talked about, obviously this is an album that has the, according to Roll of Stone, the best song of all time performed by the greatest singer of all time mm-hmm. on the 13th best album of all time. Those are all based on Rolling Stones lists. NPR says this is the fourth greatest album ever made by a woman and it feels appropriate that it's our first solo female artist pick. And we're going to have quite a few this season. Yeah. I mean, who better than the queen of soul herself, right? That's right. It just, I mean, you know, it it was, it was going to have to either be Aretha or Beyonce, you know, we were going to have to start with a queen. So we ended up talking a lot about Aretha, the gospel singer, and the influence of gospel music in general. But one of the things I had never thought about with Aretha Franklin, and I'm so glad that we had Aaron on to talk about this, is the influence of jazz on this album. Obviously, she she does nine jazz albums, jazz vocal albums on Columbia Records. But I wasn't thinking about how much time she would be spending performing every night in jazz clubs in New York city alongside some of the all-time greats of jazz music. So in one episode, we've been able to hear that Aretha Franklin behind maybe the greatest gospel album of all time honed her chops for 10 years as really a jazz singer performing alongside all-time great jazz artists And here on I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, we get to hear those things combined with soul and R&B and blues and music. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this incredibly diverse album, it's really hard not to just see this as kind of a shoe in. This is this is just an obvious pick. This is a no brainer. Yeah. And. I mean, I guess my concern is it too obvious? You know, is it is it is it so obvious that it's actually a safe pick? Or you you said, you know, it's crazy that she has what's probably the best gospel album of all time. And it might not be her best album. It may not be her best album. You said that, but it made me think, well, making our list. We probably, if we're going to include a gospel album, it would probably be that one. Yeah, if if you're going to do a gospel album, if it's not going to be this one, what is it going to be? 
Right. So are we doing the list a disservice by not including a gospel album? And of course, you know me. I've also been torn lately with saying Young, Gifted, and Black is actually her, maybe her best, most impressive album. You know, so what, what I can, I, when I made my list of 50, I was like, yeah, this is easy. This is the one. Like, if you're going to pick and read the album, that's the one. And then just listening to going back and listening to more Aretha to prepare for this, I'm like, oh man, that's, I don't want to put her in that box. I, I've, I've opened her up so much more in my mind that I'm hesitant to put her back in the box with this list and say, that's the one, just look at that snapshot. You'll get the whole picture because there's so much more to her. Sure. But no one, no one yeah. is saying about Aretha Franklin that this album is all there is to her. I, I think this is the pick is the best Aretha album. What makes it for me the best Aretha album is the fact that this is the album that hints at all of the different things that like, this is the album that is the starting point. This is the album that if you're going to hand one Aretha Franklin album to someone, you're going to tell them start here because of what you get but you also get the hints on this album that can lead you off in all of the different directions of all the other things that she's capable of. Is it a safe pick? No. Is it an obvious pick? Sure. But I don't know that our goal in this list is to avoid obvious picks. I, I think they're also obvious picks for a reason. Yeah. Um, I mean, like purple, purple rain is a, is an obvious pick that I, I have no, I have no problems with. If we had set out saying, all right, we need to do a gospel album. I think amazing grace would have, would have been it. Yes. But I, I still don't know as, as great as amazing grace is. I still don't know that it's Aretha's best album. It's, it's impressive for, a number of reasons other than how good Aretha Franklin is. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it's, it's the, the choir of that church in Watts. It's the historical moment. It's the band is bananas, you know, mm-hmm. like there, there are a number of reasons outside of like her specifically why that album is great. Whereas young gifted and black, I think it's her as an artist. I think it's her most impressive work on a studio album okay so all right so it's not just because it's a great starting point album you do genuinely think this is the best one not just the best one to get you an intro into Rita, but just overall this is the best one yeah i think this and, and again so if 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 we're coming down to it I would say that my top three Aretha albums, my top three Aretha albums are pretty close. Now you, your number one seems to be tied. It, uh, yeah. My, my one and two and my five and six are pretty much interchangeable. Yeah. So for me, my, my top three Aretha albums all stay pretty close together. Mm -hmm. Uh, Admittedly. And so because they stay close together, then you break it down to, all right, what, what sets the albums apart? Yeah. And that's where, for me, is it obvious? Sure. But you go with 
the greatest song of all time. Right. According to Rolling Stone, they're definitely not always right. And there are some things, I mean, we could, we can talk, we could do a whole episode about how ridiculous their most recent uh, 500 greatest songs of all time list is. Oh brother. But, but I don't know that even if you don't see respect as the greatest song of all time, I don't know a person realistically who could not argue that respect is not a top 10 song of all time in, in good faith. I don't know that there's an argument to be made that this is not among the top 10 greatest songs ever made. Mm-hmm. So if you've got albums that are pretty close together like that, if you've got great album, great album, great album, which again, how amazing it is, is it that we're talking about an artist that has this many albums. And for me, Amazing Grace, I would put it number four, which means I think she has three albums better than the greatest gospel album of all time. Mm-hmm. That's how bonkers her catalog is. Yeah. And so you take that. Like and, a five-year period, too. Like it's, it's yeah. short amount. From 67 to 72, I so, mean, she's so firing given, on all cylinders. Yeah. So given that, you go, all right, well, if they're all pretty close together and they're all amazing, you all you take the one that also has to happens to have one of the greatest one of the 10 greatest songs of all time and that's the and that's the deciding factor that's what pushes it across the edge all right i feel better aretha franklin deserving of of her place in our list and i think this album is deserving of its place as as her representation yeah i agree it's I, a great album it's a great album yeah i i think Never loved a man the way I love you. It's the one, you know, and I was listening to it. Here's where I think I went wrong. I'm going to say this really quickly as I've been listening to it in headphones a lot. Mm-hmm. I put the record on before we went to record. And I was like, Oh, I should have been listening to it like this all week long because playing on the turntable really brings out, you know, all, all the sounds that are on that record. Yeah, Head, headphones on streaming services and stuff just like really compresses it in a way that you, you I think you lose. You miss the warmth of her voice, and in a yeah. lot of ways, you miss the power of her voice because of the compression. Well, also the band, the uh, the horns and the, and the and the rhythm section, um, yeah, have to be heard on um nice big and and the the copy I have is a late '60s reissue or early '70s, just judging by the Atlantic label. Um, but it's in stereo. So to have it on two large speakers on both sides of the room, you know, that brings out that record much better than listening to it with earbuds in. So lesson learned, listen to the record um, many more times instead of through headphones before we record so I can be more firm in my initial decision making. But yeah, yeah, this is, this is the album. Never Loved a Man, for sure. Well, listener, we want to thank you for being with us. We want to thank our guest, Aaron Cohen, for being with us. What a treat it was to have him. As always, you can stay up to date with us and everything that's going on with the podcast on Instagram at You Forgot One, on Twitter at You Forgot One Pod. Of course, you can reach out to us at our website, youforgotone.com, or if you're over the age of 50 and you want to reach out to us on Facebook, you can reach out to us there as well. Facebook.com slash you forgot one. 
Micaiah, what is the feedback you want to hear from our listeners from this episode? For someone who's going to reach out to us on Twitter, what do you want to know about their thoughts on Aretha Franklin? Yeah, listeners, hit us up. Is this the right Aretha album? You know, um, because there are other great ones. Lady Soul, Amazing Grace, Young Gifted in Black. You know, there are there are at least six that could be top 500, but there are four definite ones that could be in the top 100. Did we choose the right one? Let us know, you know, what, what's the best uh, Aretha album? Absolutely. Listener, we will see you next week as we talk about Frank Ocean's Blonde.